Uh, today's scripture is 1 Peter one twenty two to 2, 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. Good to see you guys today. Whoa. For those of you who are sleeping, tired from a long night last night, that was for you just to wake you up, okay? Uh, hopefully that won't happen again, but let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together today. Uh, we know that it is your grace that we get to stand together as a church and we get to hear from your word. And so, Father, we are um, just as always anxiously awaiting you to speak today. Uh, we know that more than anything, we need to hear from you. And so we're praying that today would not be my words, it would not be uh, my ideas or my opinions, but rather that it would be your words and your thoughts that we would clearly point to your scripture. We're reminded even in this passage that your word will last forever. And as such, these words that we're about to read and discuss today are not of a temporary importance, but instead they have eternal value. And so may we receive those words as such today. There'll be many words that'll be written today, whether it be on blogs or whether it'll be in newspapers or magazines or whatever the case may be. But those words will not stand forever. Your word, however, will. And so we pray that we would rightly prioritize your word today, that we would value it, that we would treasure it, that we believe that it is the source of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When it comes to parenting, there is no shortage of information out there about how it is that we're to parent. For example, if you Google effective parenting strategies, you will soon find that you have far more information than you could possibly ever process. There is article after article telling you how you should parent. There are lists of effective parenting strategies. There are entire websites devoted to this task. There are even quizzes that you can take. There is one quiz I found that you can quote, identify your current level of performance as a parent. Uh, just for the record, I did take the quiz, but I couldn't find out how to get the results. So I don't know if I'm a good parent or not, but there's all kinds of information out there, right? There's no end to the amount of parenting information. But even though we have mountains and mountains of information about how to parent, the reality is that if you're a parent, you know it's still really difficult. In fact, sometimes just the sheer amount of information and all these voices telling you what you should do makes it even more overwhelming. And perhaps that's why I found Randy Pope's comments on parenting to be so helpful. In our men's discipleship group, we just started a section last week on parenting, and Randy Pope, who is the author of our curriculum, said this. He says, you can boil down all the plans and strategies for parenting into two simple rules. Love your God in the presence of your children with all your heart, and love your children with all of your heart. Now, that's challenging, right? It's challenging because it forces us to ask, do we actually love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind? And are we actually loving our kids in a way that they see that that is true as well? that they see we love them, but more importantly, that we love Christ more than anything. But as challenging as that is, I find it encouraging too. There's so much information out there about parenting. There's so much that you can do. 
But if we just boil it down to this, love God, love your kids, in the end we'll be successful parents. But if you think of it, that's not just a strategy for parenting, is it? That's actually the strategy for all of the Christian life. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second he says is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God, love people. This is a pattern that we see not just for parents. This is a pattern not just that we see in Matthew 22. This is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture, including this passage that we're about to read today. In 1 Peter 1, 22-2-3. This whole idea of loving God and loving people is at the heart of this passage. From the start here in 1 Peter 1, 22, it's obvious that there is a need for us to love other people. But it's also obvious that all of that is based on the foundation of loving God. In fact, we see that even starting in verse 22. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now the command is obvious in verse 22. That we are to love one another earnestly. But it's based on the fact that we have been born again. That we have been purified. In other words, that we are followers of Christ. It's clear here that Peter is saying that we are to love others because of the fact that we first loved God. Now, it's also obvious that Peter is saying that we are to love one another. When he says that, he's saying that we are particularly to love other Christians. If you are here today and you claim to be a follower of Christ, you have a particular charge, and that is that you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't diminish the fact that we are to love all people. And for example, we're supposed to love our enemies even. But there is something to be qualitatively different about our love for fellow Christians. In fact, in verse 22, there are several descriptive items that Peter gives here to tell us what this love should look like. So all this language is taken directly from verse 22. First of all, that our love for one another is to be a brotherly love. Or to say it another way, it's to be a family-like love. Listen, there is a difference between the way you love your family and the way you love your coworkers. Right? You may love your coworker, you may care about them, you may like being around them, you may be even interested in, their, in what they're interested in. But unless you have an unusual relationship with that coworker, it's probably much different than your relationship with your family. When you are part of a family, you drop everything for the sake of your family. For example, later this week, Tanya and I and our four kids are hopping into our minivan and we are driving all the way from New York to northern Wisconsin. And the reason we are doing this is for one reason. It is my brother's wedding. I can, uh, let me just assure you, I would not drive to northern Wisconsin for just anything. In fact, I can't really think of anything else I would drive to northern Wisconsin for. And that's not to diminish, if there's any Wisconsinites in here, I'm not saying your state's bad. I'm just saying it's a really long ways when you have four kids, right? And so I wouldn't go there for anything, but for family, I'll go. Right, for this uh, fact that is my brother getting married, of course there wasn't hesitation. We're going. Because that's the way family works. You sacrifice. You make exceptions. You go out of your way to make things worse. Or to make things work. That, I hope that wasn't a Freudian slip there, right? <clears throat> Sometimes I do get worse. Let's be honest, right? Sometimes it gets difficult. But that's actually the point too. Even when things get messy, we still work through it because it's family. Right? Because it's family. Well, this is what it's supposed to be like in the church. That type of love that we have for a brother or sister, a biological brother or sister, a biological parent or an adopted parent or whatever the case is, this is the type of love we are to have for one another is to be a brotherly love. Listen, the church is not meant to be a social club. It's not meant to be a religious institution. 
It's not meant to be a group of people who just gather together every now and then, maybe once a week, right? No, it is meant to be a family. We are meant to be a family. We are to care for each other in the same way that we would care for a family member. Why? Because this is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. It's to be a family. Now, that's not the only description he gives here of love. He says also that our love is to be sincere and earnest. Now again, this is taken directly from verse 22. That we are to have a sincere and earnest love for one another. It's one thing to say you love other people. It's another thing to actually love other people. right? It's one thing to say you care about the interests of others. It's another thing to actually care about the interests of others. The fact is, it is rare to find people who are genuinely interested in your welfare. It is rare to find someone who has a sincere and earnest love for you. Earlier this spring when we were looking at houses, trying to decide whether to buy or rent, uh, through that whole process we got involved with probably four or five or six different realtors. And it quickly became obvious to us that most realtors don't really have our best interest in mind. In fact, uh, really, they're motivated by one thing, their commission. And in fact, they're willing to do whatever it takes. Now, I'm not saying that for all realtors. Again, I'm not trying to offend every person who comes in here. If you're a realtor here today, I just want you to know, I don't have a problem with all realtors. I'm just saying this is how it usually works, right? At least in our experience here. They're willing to be pushy. They're willing to manipulate the truth a little bit. Because ultimately, their interests and our interests were only when the two lined up together. Right? When their interests coincide with our interests, then they were willing to work for us. Now, for the record, I'm sure that that was true in Texas, too, when we bought and sold our house there. It's just that in New York, they're not very good at hiding it, right? We were just more aware of the fact that they were not motivated by our interests. But listen, I get it, right? I get it. They're trying to make a living, and the fact is that unless our interests line up, it's not really in their best interest to look out for us. And for the most part, that is the way the world works. But listen, that is not the way the church is to work. We are to have an earnest and sincere love, a love that is not motivated by self-interest, a love that is not motivated by an agenda, but a love that genuinely seeks the welfare of others. And so I just say this, as you look at the people around in this room, can you say that you have a brotherly love for them? Can you say that you have a sincere and earnest love that is not motivated by an agenda, that is not motivated by the fact that they bring something to the table for you? Do you care about them? This is the type of love that we are to have as Christians. But Peter also says that this love is to be driven from a pure heart. Now, at this point, we might start asking, well, what kind of love are we talking about here, right? You're probably with me on the first two. You're like, yeah, brotherly love, family love, that sounds great. Sincere and earnest love, that makes sense. But love from a pure heart? At this point, you might be asking, are we even talking about a human love? Right? Who has the love from a pure heart? And in fact, I would say that's actually kind of the point. The love that we are to have is not really human. It comes from God. And that's actually the argument that Peter's making. Verses 23 to 25, he seems to be saying, the reason you can love like this, from a pure heart, with sincerity, with earnestness, with a family-like love, the reason you can do this is because there is something different about you. And that's what Peter describes in verses 23 to 25. Verse 23, he says this, having purified your souls by, excuse me, I'm in 22, let me go back to 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So here's the point that Peter, I think, is making. He's saying that we should have a love for one another that is almost supernatural, that it is supernatural because we have been born again. 
This is what we talked about a few weeks ago. John 3, Jesus says, what, or Nicodemus comes and asks, what must I do to see the kingdom of God or inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must believe in the good news of the gospel and you must become a new person. You must be born again. In fact, Peter started the book by saying that God has caused us to be born again. And the nature of that second birth is different than the nature of our first birth. That which comes from human procreation is of a perishable seed. But we are born again with a seed that will never perish or never fade. We are born of the living word of God. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will never fade. And this is the exact point that Peter is making. He's saying this is what has caused you to be born again. You have an imperishable seed. It goes on in verses 24 and 25 to describe that seed. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it seems here that the point Peter is making is that our love should be of a different quality because we have been born of an imperishable seed. Therefore, our love should be different than those who are just born of the perishable seed. We have been born of an imperishable seed. We have been birthed again through the word of God. And therefore, our love is to be different. It's to be qualitatively different. It's to be a love that persists and lasts. Because we were born of this imperishable seed. God has given us new birth through the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is why we love differently. Peter quotes Isaiah 40. He says that all flesh is like grass, but the word of God will remain forever. I think the logic here is this, that because the word remains forever, and because the word is what caused us to be born again, therefore, we are to love with a forever love also. We are to have a love that persists and lasts even into eternity because the community that we're born into is not just an earthly community, it's one that will last forever. In fact, the community that we have here at New Hope is just a foreshadow of the greater community that's still to come. We have an eternity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so the point is that we should love them differently. Now, I know that Peter is making a side note here about the Word of God. He's using the Word of God to make his point about love, but I think it's worth reflecting on the side note for a second. In Isaiah 40, the passage he's quoting, it says that all flesh is like grass, but the Word of God remains forever. I think that's important for us to hear. Keep in mind that the people Peter is writing to are people who are being pushed to the side in their culture. They're being uh, ostracized socially. They're facing economic difficulty. They're being pushed to the margins. Right? We've talked about this already as we've been preaching through the book of 1 Peter. Because of their faith in Christ, they are experiencing difficulty. And so Peter is saying something really important to them here. There's a temptation, as always, when you're being pushed to the side when your life is more difficult because you follow Jesus, to think, well, is it really worth it to keep following him? But Peter's encouraging them here. He's saying, the word of God will remain forever. The people that are ostracizing you, the people that are persecuting you, the people that are causing you to suffer, they will die. But the word of God will last forever. And so Peter's encouraging them, I think in this side note, to cling to the word, to cling to the message of the gospel, to cling to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, to cling to the promises of God. But listen, surely this is something we need to hear as well. This is something we need to hear as well. Flesh will perish, but the word of God will remain forever. The word of God will remain forever. And as the culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, there will be a temptation 
to go with the crowd. And there will be a desire that probably wells up within you to start to soften your convictions. Or maybe even to start to question, is this book really reliable? As more people push us to the side, as we become more marginalized, we'll be tempted to think, well, maybe we should just kind of water down what this says. Or maybe we should kind of give in. But we must never back down from the message of this book. Not now, not ever. Because this is the word of God and it will last forever. And so even if we face persecution, even if we face suffering, even if we face economic difficulty, even if we face imprisonment, even if we face death, we must cling to the message of this book. And in fact, that's why we love differently because we have this message that unites us together. And it's a message that will last forever and so therefore we love one another with this forever love. Listen, the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, that he rose three days later. That message will never fade away. And so we cling with all we have to this word. This is the message we heard. This is the message we believed. This is the message that causes us to be born again. This is the message that will never fade. It will never fade. This is the message that unites us together. We love one another with a sincere, earnest love with a brotherly love, with the love from a pure heart, because the word of God has caused us to be born again. Because we understand that we are great sinners and Christ is a great savior. This is what brings us together. This is why no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter where we grew up, no matter where we live now, we can be united by this common message. And hopefully in the days to come, this will be reflected even more in our body here at New Hope. That we will have a body of Christ that reflects economic and racial and background diversity. That we would be able to say there is one message that unites us. It's the message of this word. It's the message that Christ died and he rose again. So this is what it means for us to live as followers of Christ. That we love one another. Listen, if you say that you love God and yet you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ... First John would say that you are still in the darkness. You're still in the darkness because the one who's been born of the imperishable seed will love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no accident that last week in our passage in 1 Peter, Peter calls the Christians to live a holy life, to live a life that is different and set apart. And now, as he has the first opportunity to kind of flesh that out, he starts by saying that we should love one another. Because loving one another is at the heart of what it means to follow Christ. Now that said, uh, you probably noticed this before, the Bible talks a lot about loving one another. But sometimes it's a little bit nebulous. What do we mean by loving one another? In this case, Peter gives us a very specific example. Now it's a negative example. He's telling us this is what love does not look like. But I think it's worth us thinking about. Verse 1. Verse 1 says this. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. I don't think there's any doubt that this is a continuation of his command to love one another, because all of the sins that he mentions here, all of them are the sins that will destroy the community. They will destroy our love for one another. They will bring havoc into the family. I think he had a little side note there about the word of God in verses 23 to 25, but this is a continuation of his command to love one another that we are to put off all of these attributes. And since these are attributes that will destroy the community, 
I think it's worth it or worthwhile for us to slow down here and just think about what he's saying. All right, so notice first that he says that we are to put off all malice. Malice. Malice can be thought of as the desire to bring harm or injury or pain to someone else's life. That's what it means to be malicious. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds pretty harsh, right? A desire to bring difficulty or pain or suffering to another person's life. Maybe you're thinking that would never happen in the church. And if you're thinking that, let me just say welcome, because apparently this is your first time in a church, right? Because this happens all the time in churches. I wish I could tell you that was not the case. In fact, I'm tempted to lie to you and say that doesn't happen. But then the very next one says that we should not have deceit. So I can't do that, right? I have to be honest with you and say that there is malice that happens in the church. I've seen it too many times where people will say things because they want to hurt a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Or they will do something because they want to make the other person feel bad. Listen, it happens in the world too, but it happens in the church. And what Peter is saying is that we need to put that away. We need to get rid of that malicious desire. And the reason is because we're united around this common message, right? And we believe that we were sinners rescued by God through his mercy, and we want to display that mercy to others. Now, are there times where people hurt us, and we feel like we have a right to hurt them back? Absolutely. But the point of the gospel is that what we deserve is not always what we get. Right? In fact, we deserve the condemnation of God, but instead we get grace. And we want to show that same attitude to others. And so you may be tempted to be malicious precisely because someone has been malicious to you. But don't give in. Don't give in. Instead, put away all malice. Put away all malice. He also says to put away all deceit and hypocrisy. Now, I think it's worth grouping those two together because they're very similar. Right? Deceit may take the form of just straight out lying. But oftentimes, deceit takes the form of hypocrisy, meaning that we're pretending to be something that we're actually not. Now listen, if you grew up in a Christian background, or if you grew up in a background that's moral at all, I would guess that at some point, your parents or your guardians or whoever it is told you, do not lie. In fact, even growing up in my house, although there wasn't a heavy emphasis on the word of God, this was always one of the things that would get you in the most trouble. You never lie. And with our kids, we, we certainly emphasize that there should be no lying in our house either. That's one of the sins that we take seriously as well. Listen, if you grew up in the church, you know this is kind of a big deal. In fact, you probably recognize it as one of the Ten Commandments. Do not lie. We know it's one of the biggies. And yet, I would say that deceit and hypocrisy often run rampant in churches. And let me tell you how it often happens. It often happens when we hide our sin. When we're hiding our sin... That's deceit, right? When we're hiding our sin, that is hypocrisy. And so what happens is we come here, we hide our sin, and we pretend like we have it all together. And I'm not just saying this of New Hope. This is true of almost every church. People come in, their lives have been difficult throughout the week, or they're dealing with some sin, but when they come on Sunday, they put on this face, they act like they have it all together, and they act like life is perfectly good. That is deceit, and that is hypocrisy. My question is, why do we engage in this? If you think of it, it's a little bit absurd. First of all, we have commands like this telling us, do not be deceitful, do not be hypocritical. But on top of that, it undercuts the very hope that the gospel offers. Listen, do you realize that the reason why we are Christians, 
The reason why we believe the gospel is because we know that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior. Do you realize that's kind of an important part of the gospel? And do you realize that the reason why we come together is because collectively we believe the gospel together, which means that we believe that we are all great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior. And yet, for some reason, when we come together, we pretend as if none of us are sinners at all. How does that make any sense? Right? The whole purpose for gathering together, the whole purpose for coming to church is because we're great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. And yet when we come, oftentimes we pretend like, oh, I'm not a sinner at all. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are still in bondage to sin because we're not. We're not. And I'm not saying that we should delight in our sin or that we should uh, make light of it or, or think it's not a bad thing because it's terrible. We should hate our sin. But what I am saying is that as Christians, we will struggle with sin here on this earth. And we need to acknowledge and confess that sin. Listen, if you're under the impression that other people in this room are not messed up, you are sadly mistaken. There's not a person in this room that is not messed up, including the one who's preaching today. Listen, I want you to know, I am messed up. I can be impatient with my kids. I can get irritable and grumpy sometimes. I care too much what people think about me. I get too invested in my idols, like sports. I can be prideful. I can be judgmental. At times, I can get way too anxious. And that is just scratching the surface. Listen, I am a messed up person. Now, by God's grace, I'm no longer in bondage to those sins. And by God's grace, I think I'm growing and I think I'm putting those things to death. But you might as well know, I am messed up. I'm a sinful person and I still struggle with sin. Now, I look forward to the day when I'm in heaven and those things are no longer troubling me. But until that day, there will always be things that I struggle with because I am a sinner. There is no use in me standing up here and saying, I've got it all together. Because it's just not true. I don't. I don't. In fact, sometimes even when we're on our way to church, now we've gotten better at this over the years, but Tony and I can have arguments on the way to church. Right? I'm going to preach, and here I am arguing with my wife. Or I'm getting impatient with my kids. Right? The reality is that we all struggle with sin. There is no use pretending that you have it together, because you don't. You don't. Now I know some of you are hiding more serious issues. Right? Some of you have marriages right now that are on the brink. They're on the brink. Or others of you are addicted to pornography. Some of you are out of control in your gossip. Some of you have serious anger issues, maybe with your kids, maybe with your coworkers. Others, it's drunkenness. Others, you struggle with anxiety and people-pleasing. Others, greedy. You love money far too much. And again, we could go on and on. I'm not asking you to come up today and to confess your sins from the pulpit. I'm not saying, hey, let's just take a turn. Everyone come up. You come up first. Alex, you're in the front row. No, I'm not asking that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying it's worth confessing to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ and bringing into light the issues that we struggle with. And what I'm saying, too, is it's okay to stop pretending like we have it all together. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? We know that you're messed up. And we know that because you're here. And because you, I assume, are here because you think that there might be hope in the gospel. Right? So you may think you've got us all fooled. Trust us, you don't. Like, we've read the Bible. We know you're messed up. We know that every person in this room is messed up. 
And so let's stop pretending. Let's stop putting up this false wall like we've got it all together. Now, we don't want to stay in our state of sin. We want there to be repentance and growth and holiness. But it's okay for us to acknowledge that we struggle. And in fact, to pretend not to be messed up is actually really unloving. And let me tell you why that's the case. Because when you hide your sin and you pretend like you've got it all together, that creates a culture where no one feels open enough to deal with the sin that they're struggling with. And so we end up being in this false community where no one's really who they are. And they can't really deal with the junk in their lives and they can't eventually find that victory in sin because they feel like they can't be open about it. And so when you're unwilling to be open about your struggles, that perpetuates itself with other people. They think, well, if they won't open up, I'm not going to open up either. And so we end up with this almost Facebook-like community, right? On Facebook, everyone's always posting all the good things that are happening. If you read Facebook, you'd be convinced that there's nothing wrong with the world. Or there's some people that always complain, but that's a different issue, right? Like, but lots of people are just saying, these are all the great things. My kids, they just ran a mile under three minutes or whatever it is, right? Like they're boasting about all these great things. That's impossible. I know that, by the way. But they're boasting about all these fantastic things. And you think, well, they don't have any problems. That's why uh, studies have shown that people get on Facebook and sometimes they become depressed. Right? Well, the same thing happens in the church. Right? We come and, and it seems like everybody else has got it together. But the reality is, we know that's not true, so let's stop pretending like it is. Right? And in fact, one of the most destructive things we can do in the church, especially as parents, is be hypocritical. Right? And make our kids think, oh yeah, we believe this and we don't really live like it's true. Or we're not sinners and we're not going to confess our sin. Both of those things will kill, will kill future generations of followers of Christ. Right? The reason why so many churches are empty today is because of the fact that there are so many parents who are hypocritical and deceptive. They either hid their sin from their kids or they're pretending like there's something they're not. So let's, let's make a point of this. Let's put away all deceit and hypocrisy. Let's be who we are. Let's be the messed up, redeemed sinners that we are. Yeah, we're messed up. But by God's grace, hopefully we're growing. Right? And we want to encourage each other in that. So let's put away deceit and hypocrisy. Let's also put away all envy as well. Listen, if God chooses to bless someone else, rejoice with them. Don't be envious of them. Maybe there's some other family in the church that has two or three kids. Whatever you think is the perfect number, Okay? And these kids always have their hair combed. And they're, uh, they're really smart. In fact, they're the smartest kids in the church. And they're really good looking. And they're really funny too. And when they go to Sunday school class, they actually listen, right? And on top of that, they're really polite to everyone. Everyone likes being around them. They're this, the best kids ever. And meanwhile, in your mind, your kids have gum in their hair. Right? And they're mess, they're, they're, uh, they don't acknowledge hellos from other people. And they're kind of goofy looking. And they're awkward to be around. And they fall asleep during the Sunday school class. Right? I think we have these caricatures in our mind that every, every, everyone else's family is like this. And our family is really messed up. Well, first of all, you need to know the first family doesn't exist. Right? There's no family like that. There's no perfect family. And secondly, I think what you need to know is this. If there was that family, I would hope that you would rejoice with them. And I hope you say, well, praise God that all of those things are happening. But usually what happens is we get envious. We start saying, well, why doesn't God do that for me? Or why doesn't God let us have that type of family? But listen, when we do that, essentially what we're doing is questioning the wisdom of God. And we're saying, well, God doesn't really know what's best. Because if he did, he would give me that too. No, no, understand, God loves you. 
Right? In fact, he loves you so much that he won't give you what you think you want. Instead, he'll give you what he knows you need. And so don't be envious. envious. Envy is ultimately a lack of trust in God. It's thinking, oh, we deserve to have better. And the reality is, God knows exactly what we need. So put off envy and put away all slander. Now, to slander someone is to defame them or to speak ill of them with an ill intent. Few sins are as common in the church and few are as destructive as slander. And I'm not just saying that about New Hope, I'm saying that about every church that I've ever been at. So ask yourself this question, have you spoken slanderously of another brother and sister in Christ in this church in the last month, or the last week, or the last few days, or today, or even the last few hours? Ephesians 5.29 says this, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is your speech giving grace to those who hear? When people are around you, do they think grace? Or do they find condemnation and judgment? Are they being built up or are they being torn down? I recognize that malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, they're all a part of the world around us. In fact, I would venture to say that in your workplace this week, probably all of those things took place. In fact, In my workplace this week, I wouldn't be surprised if all those things took place, and I'm the only one in my workplace, right? So there's no doubt that these are issues that will continue to haunt us. But we want to get rid of those as Christians. Listen, the reason, the reason why people struggle with these things is because ultimately what they're wanting is to put themselves in a position where they're above other people. The reason why we, we act maliciously or speak slanderously is because by putting other people down, we feel better. The reason why we deceive or we're hypocritical is because we want to elevate ourselves to a level that we're not really at. The reason why we're slanderous or the reason why we're envious is because we want to make ourselves feel better and we want to elevate ourselves. But as Christians, the goal is not to elevate ourselves. Instead, the goal is to elevate Christ. And in fact, the goal is that we would not long for self-elevation but that we would long to know more of Jesus. And in fact, that's really the way this passage ends. Right? Verse 1 is telling us to put away all these things, and then verses 2 and 3 says this, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now most commentators would say that this precious milk is the word of God. And I think that makes sense of the context. Verses 23 to 25 is so focused on the word. And then even verse 1, it would seem to make sense that the word would be the countering agent here. Uh, The reason why we put away the sins of verse 1 is because we long to obey the word of God. And because we believe that the word of God is better. That the instructions in the word of God are better than these sins. Right, So we've tasted that the Lord is good. And now we want to live in a way that pleases him because we trust that it's better. For example, the word tells us that we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we believe, because we tasted that the Lord is good, we believe that then if his word says to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll put away those other things, malice, slander, hypocrisy, deceit, envy, because we trust that the word is better. Why? Because we believe that God is good. Right? And his word, therefore, is good too. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here that in other places in Scripture, Longing for milk is seen as a bad thing. 
In fact, uh, there's two other times in the New Testament where uh, people are essentially being criticized because they've not moved from milk to solid food. In other words, uh, Paul, I think in both cases, is correcting them because they're still immature. Understand that is not what's going on here. Don't mix the metaphors, right? Like in those two, that's a totally different story. What Peter is saying here is that as Christians, we should long for the Word of God in the same way that a newborn longs for milk. Now, for those of you who are parents, this analogy probably needs no explanation. right? You understand that when a baby is born, they long for milk. But for those of you who are not parents, let me just clue you in and say this. Newborns are not timid in their desire to be fed. Right? You don't find a newborn just waiting in bed. You walk in and, and they're just looking at their clock. Yeah, it's a few more minutes. I'll just wait. Like, that doesn't happen. They don't have the nonverbal equivalent of, uh, excuse me, if you don't mind, when you get a chance, I would like some milk. Right? They don't have that. Instead, what they have is they are, they cry, they scream, they wake you up. Right? It doesn't matter if it's two in the morning. It doesn't matter if they wake up every other child in the house. It doesn't matter if you haven't had more than three hours of sleep for two consecutive weeks. It does not matter because there is only one thing that will satisfy them and they must be satisfied now. It is milk. And what Peter is saying is this is how we should be as Christians towards the word of God. That we should crave it, that we should long for it in the same way that a newborn desires milk. This is what we are to be like. We are to be unsatisfied until we know and live the word of God. And here's why. Because we've tasted that the Lord is good. We've tasted that the Lord is good. That's verse 3. This is actually a quote from Psalm 34. Peter's going to quote Psalm 34 again later in the book of 1 Peter. This theme of Psalm 34 is that even in times of suffering and in difficulty, the righteous can be confident that God will deliver them. In other words, even when things are hard, God is good. And since we've tasted that, we want more of it. And we recognize that the, reason, the, the way to which we get to know him more is through his word. Right? And so we long for his word. We want to live according to his word. The word gives us life. The word keeps us from sin. The word causes us to grow. It helps us to know him more. And that in turn means that we'll love other people too. So here's my question. Do you long for the word of God? Do you crave the word in the same way that a newborn craves milk? Now, some of you crave the word in the same way that a newborn craves sulfuric acid, which is to say you don't crave it at all, right? And that's a problem. In fact, that's more than a problem. That should be very concerning to you. If you have no desire for the word, then you have to ask yourself, have I actually tasted the goodness of God? Do I actually know Christ? It might be worth pausing and reflecting today and asking this question. Do I crave the word of God? If not, why not? Now, I also think it's worth pausing and reflecting on this passage as a whole and asking, how do we respond to what Peter is saying? Let me say this. Um, Peter is addressing a group of people here that he says are born again. And so the place to start, and I know I start here regularly to say this, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, the place to start is to recognize that in Christ your sins can be forgiven and that you can be born again and that you can have hope. Now, um, I, I know that sometimes you probably think I'm just like a resounding gong or like I'm just playing the same song over and over when every week I tell people, if you don't know Christ, repent of your sins and trust Christ. And you're thinking, well, everyone here is probably Christians. Well, listen, the reason why I know that there are people who often go to church and don't actually know Christ is because I was one of those people. 
For the first 18 years of my life, I was there week after week after week. And I thought I was a Christian, but the reality is I did not know Christ. I never repented of my sins and trusted Christ. And so I'm assuming that given that there's many people here, I would assume that maybe there's others in that boat. And my plea with you today is do not wait. Repent of your sins and trust Christ so you can be born again. So that you can experience the joy, so that you can taste the goodness of God. Now for others of you, if you're Christians, I would think that maybe one of the responses from today's passage is that you just need to repent. Right? You failed to sincerely love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe there's a brother or sister that you've wronged. And you need to go and you need to reconcile with that brother or sister in Christ. And you need to do so now before it's too late. Listen, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, or some combination, maybe, maybe, or some combination, or maybe all of them have been a part of your life for a while, potentially. And so what you need to do, if that's the case, is you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and by the grace of God, live differently. I suspect that for every person in this room, there's at least some repentance that needs to take place as it relates to those five sins listed in verse one. Maybe for some, it's not just repentance, but it's reconciliation also. So I just encourage you, don't let the moment pass by. Repent, reconcile if needed, but let the word do its work. But there's one other response I think that's called for in this passage. And that's simply this, that we need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. Verse 3 closes by saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the obvious implication of that argument is simply this, that if you have tasted God's goodness, you will crave the word. You will desire to be more like him. And eventually that will lead to a love for other people. Now Peter's on a roll here as it relates to analogies, because I think this is an analogy we can relate to also. If you've ever tasted something really good, you want more of it. If you've ever tasted my wife's chocolate caramel better than anything cake, you want more of that cake. If you've ever tasted anything Tim Kang has ever cooked, you want more of what he's cooking. Right? If you've tasted the goodness of Chick-fil-A, you want more. Now, I know not everyone agrees on that last one, but I think those of us who have the spirit probably do, right? <clears throat> Just kidding, of course. It's okay. It's, it's all right if you don't like Chick-fil-A. You're wrong, but it's okay. The point is, though, if you've tasted something good, you want more. Right? If you've tasted the goodness of God, you want more. But sometimes we forget that goodness. We forget what that taste is like. Maybe it's been too long since we've tasted that goodness, and so we've forgotten the goodness of God, and that's why we don't crave the word. That's why we don't love other people. That's why we don't love God. And so my question is, have you forgotten? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember the goodness of God? Uh, one of our friends from Texas called this week. Uh, this is probably the family that we were closest to in Amarillo. A great family. They love God more than anything. Um, they had four kids. Two of them went through student ministry while I was a student pastor there. <clears throat> two of them were younger. And the youngest, uh, for years, has heard the gospel. Of course, this is a family that... I've sat in their house at night. They have family devotions. Even when their kids are teenagers, they have family devotions every night. They're pointing their kids to Christ at every opportunity. But their youngest had not yet repented and trusted Christ for salvation. And so her parents have been praying for years and years that she would come to know Christ. Well, finally, in the last um, couple months now, this precious little girl came to the realization that she was a sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. 
And so one night her parents gathered her in the room and they just prayed for her. They prayed that, that God would just work in her and that uh, this conviction that he brought, they, just, they prayed for her. And then she prayed. And she confessed that she was a sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. And the whole time, tears are streaming down her face. And when they get done praying, the little girl falls back on her pillow and she says, wow, he really loves me. Wow, he really loves me. I love that story. Every time I tell it, every time I think of it, when I've been practicing this week, it gives me goosebumps every time. Because I think that is what happens at salvation. Right? When you understand the gospel for the first time, it is an understanding, wow, he really loves me. I wonder if sometimes we forget that. That overwhelming feeling of his love and grace we forget as the years go by. We've forgotten what the taste of goodness is. When we taste, that makes us crave more for righteousness. It makes us crave more for his word. Because we know that as we obey his word and as we crave his word, we will experience more of him and we'll experience more of his goodness. But as time goes on, we often forget that goodness. We lose our wonder at his love. That little girl that I'm describing, that wonder of just falling back, wow, he really loves me. We forget that. We forget the taste of his goodness. And so our love for the word begins to cool. And our love for people begins to wane too. So that's why we so desperately need to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. That's why this week one of the best things you can do is just remind yourself over and over of how much he loves you by the fact that he sent his son to die for you. If you look to the cross and you remind yourself of his goodness, I'm confident that if the spirit is in you, you will crave more of him and you will love him more and you will love other people and really that's what it's all about right the first and greatest commandment love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul and all your mind the second love your neighbor as yourself this is what we're called to do but it's not a command that is absent of love right we're being told to love but it's motivated by love too because we understand who he is, because we understand his goodness. This is why we love God. This is why we love other people. Let us never forget his great love. Let us never forget how good he tastes. And let's live like we believe that's true.